86 of Positive Regression, a Motorsports Analytics podcast. I'm Alan Cavana of Fox Sports, joined by David Smith of Motorsports Analytics. On this episode, we say goodbye and bid farewell to the four drivers out of the title chase after a surprising Martinsville weekend. And we look at the winners and losers of a wild free agency year, plus a special preview of Phoenix that you get to be involved in, listeners. So stick around to the end. We need your help. But first, as always, this is episode 86 of Positive Regression. This is the Buddy Baker edition. David, this one I know, a member of the most recent NASCAR Hall of Fame class, Buddy Baker made his impression both on and off the racetrack. David, check this out. He made exactly 700 starts, many of them in a number 86 car owned by his father, Buck Baker. And when I was looking this up, David, I'll be honest, when I saw only 19 wins, I say only, but 19 wins, no title to speak of, those numbers did kind of surprise me. I just, you know, his legend uh, is is bigger than the, right? I mean, he's bigger. He's a big person. Uh, I just thought there would be higher numbers for the Hall of Famer that he is. But we know what else he did off the racetrack. But where do you want to start when it comes to Buddy Baker and his 700 starts in NASCAR? Well, I can frame it uh, very well. He was six feet, six inches tall. So when you say he was a big man, yeah, of, of the, the legend was big. The guy was big too. But uh, I think with Buddy Baker, the numbers, as in there are just a lot of numbers to digest when talking about Buddy Baker. So the 19 wins and 700 career starts. Uh, okay. Uh, that isn't a, a a rate that pops off the spreadsheet, right? But 202 top five finishes, that is a 29% clip for his career. And for a good frame of reference, Kevin Harvick's top five finish rate is 31.5%. Hmm. So if if you want to put it into a little bit better context, he had the front-running frequency of Kevin Harvick, just not the top-end result. So think about it that way. There's a number that I'm going to point to uh, in a second that provides more context to that percentage, but just numbers in general, Alan, Baker bounced around. He drove for uh, a lot of top teams, some of the most famous car numbers in NASCAR history. He drove the number three. He drove the number 11, the number 15 for Bud Moore, the number 21, the number 28, the number 88. And of course he drove the number one because why not? He used 36 different car numbers during his time in the cup series. That's the most ever by a NASCAR hall of famer as, as far as I can check. But again, let's go to that top five finish rate and, and kind of that herky jerky wins versus career starts in his career. Buddy Baker had 330 DNFs. That is 47% of his starts. So if you consider that with the remaining 53%, he strung together results worthy of NASCAR Hall of Fame induction. It's actually pretty incredible. That is awesome when you put it like that. And uh, as always, I learned something from you, David. So thank you for that. Uh, Of course, you know, people our age, uh, I'm 37 uh, and and you're similar age, David. You know, growing up, we didn't see uh, Buddy Baker racing a lot, obviously, but we do know him from the TV booth. And then after that, on the radio booth uh, with the emergence of satellite radio, and he is just held in such high accord in both uh, in all those mediums and through all his colleagues still, uh, it was just, he's one of those examples of what he did on the track and then extending it far past, uh, for future generations. And there's a few of those guys out there and Buddy Baker is one of them. Yeah. For me, forever the voice of NASCAR on TBS, if folks can remember back that far. But, uh, yeah, for years, he was one of the, the flagship, uh, hosts of Sirius XM. So kind of a, kind of a trailblazer in that regard as well. Good stuff. Shout out to him for being a bridge from the past, the present, and the future. His legacy, I I assure you, is just about everywhere in this sport. Episode 86, the Buddy Baker edition. David, it's that time once again because after Martinsville, it was an elimination round. And that means it's time for our requiems and fixes for those who are not advancing on to the championship four. And I did not think we would be talking about this first name so early, David. And I'm going to let you take this one. Kevin Harvick, not moving on, not competing for the title at Phoenix, a surprise to say the least. 
Where do you start, David, with a guy who had nine wins on the season? Where do I start? Uh, I want to peel back the curtain a little bit and let our listeners know that I teed up all four of these drivers for you. You chose to talk about Martin Truex and Kurt Busch. I found it a bit peculiar that you left Kevin Harvick to me. And after two and a half pages worth of notes, I realized why you made the decision you did. There is so much to say about Kevin Harvick. I think first things first, just a tremendous season. This this was a year that will reflect highly on him long after he is retired, uh, long after a new generation of fans never knew about him. The smart fans will realize what was accomplished this season. Nine victories. Kevin Harvick is bordering on career best production. Uh, he might even top his 2018 peer with a good enough result uh, this Sunday. We'll see how that goes. And strategically, crew chief Rodney Childers has been effective. He ranks fourth among playoff crew chiefs in position retention on green flag pit cycles. He's also taken steps to keep Kevin Harvick from having to pass in order to win races. And in that regard, he kind of flipped what this sport is. I think this helped push NASCAR into something of a new era where there is a focus on strategy uh, and not so much speed. And from a speed and track position perspective, they executed best on short runs. Uh, they had the fastest pit crew in the series across the regular season to thank for some of that. They had some of Kevin Harvick's restarting prowess to thank for some of that, but they took that and blended well into intermediate runs and that earned them tremendous finishes. This was a team that succeeded because they did everything very well. Perhaps nothing elite, mind you, but still everything well enough that it led to elite results. Now, in regards to the speed, we have forever known this number four SHR team as NASCAR's number one speed conjurer for as long as it's been in the series. And that's quite literal. This is only the second year in seven seasons that Harvick and Childers have been paired together that they did not have the fastest car. And the fact that they were winning was so, uh, uh, that their winning was so plentiful, that is a testament to being a complete race team and one that made very little mistakes. Or did they? Alan, I'm not sure if you've heard this, but some folks with either microphones in hand or active Twitter accounts are suggesting it isn't fair that Kevin Harvick isn't in the championship for. Maybe you've stumbled across that. I don't yeah. know. Oh, yeah. Wah. So, uh, okay. I, I can, I can try to, try to address this. How come someone with nine wins isn't the champion. That That's basically the gist, right? Because let's be honest, complaining would be rampant if he was championship eligible at Phoenix but blew his engine on lap one. The NASCAR playoff format would still be under fire. So I'll say this. Every team knew what tracks were going to comprise the playoffs. Even in an absurd year for... NASCAR with the schedule bent and stretched all over the place. The 10 playoff races were kept intact. They were a constant. At no point was a two mile non-drafting track ever relevant to the championship story. And Alan, four of Harvick's nine wins came on these two mile tracks. You know, I've harped about it before. This track type never had a representation in the playoffs. Maybe teams shouldn't focus so heavily on it. And here is one that did. Was this a sign of competitive strength that they won four times on this track type? Sure. Yeah, of course it is. 
but was it a sign that they obviously fare well in a 10 race playoff format? No. Was it a sign that they would do well in the final two races, both events with vastly different car rules? No. And a large part of their success, especially on the bigger tracks, was because other teams, and I'm thinking of Chase Elliott's number nine team and the two Penske teams that qualified their way into the championship race, were primarily focused on optimizing setups for playoff tracks. That car that Rodney Childers built that we heard so much about, that that car that won Harvick both Michigan races and the Indianapolis race, it was undefeated in its existence, but it wasn't a car that could be used to its full capacity in the playoffs. So I ask, in their attempt to be historically great, and I admire them so much for trying to do that, is it possible that they ignored what defines championships in the current era of NASCAR? Because I'm going to tell you, being a champion now doesn't have the same definition it used to. And NASCAR is as random as every other American sport. Does that stink? Yes. Yes. But at the same time, it shouldn't have come as a surprise and Kevin Harvick shouldn't have been saying things like he did after the race about Martinsville, like we haven't been good here for a while. Well, that's a red flag. And this is the cutoff race before the season finale. They brought the 17th fastest car. Wow. And they finished 17th. That's not great. So, <laughs> so, so having said that, I think, I think the fix for this team is almost something that is guaranteed to happen naturally because with five road course races in the regular season, the removal of some tracks where they are very good, it's going to force this team to have to consolidate, concentrate, compartmentalize. If I'm a betting man, I would bet that this team will be better in the 2021 playoffs than they will in the 2021 regular season for this reason. So that's the fix. Find a concentration because I do think it happens uh, because the schedule is going to try every team. Uh, it's going to drive them every team to that conclusion. And it's a shame this year with this four team being so good at so many tracks that it didn't result in anything beyond this. But nonetheless, it was a season for the ages. I mean, this is, this is going to be a year that will be discussed when Kevin Harvick is inducted in the Hall of Fame, potentially Rodney Childers too. It will be appreciated by the smartest faction of the NASCAR fan base. And that is something that the team should take solace in. They should take their, uh, take pride in that. Um, because it, it was an incredible year. I just think they might have lost sight on the very thing that actually crowns champions in NASCAR's modern era. David, I think that is a very fair assessment. It is hard to find a fix or a criticism, if you will, in a nine-win dominating season, but the numbers you just brought are fair. Just from uh, an amateur perspective, if you will, be watching from home, David, in some of those drivers, like Chase Elliott, in a must-win situation, right? Th that was no different than Kevin Harvick, I felt, in terms of what they needed to do at Martinsville, they were no different from the nine team in terms of what that in performance, what they needed that night at times in that race. And there was more than half the race where they were back on the lead lap and it was almost equal with Brad Kozlowski and Brad was there performing in terms of picking up spots, passing cars, getting points when he needed. And for more than half the race, it was just blowing my mind that, that, that Kevin Harvick in the four car was not doing the same thing in this critical race. And for all the success that they've had, I just couldn't wrap my head around what they weren't doing in this final race. It, I don't know if it's cliche to say it's a bad day to have a bad day, but if they knew going there ahead of time that this was one of their weaknesses, you have to play to the rules. And I think of Joey Logano, you know, what a formula he's got, right? You know, win early in the season, win late, get your ticket to Phoenix and go try to win a championship. And 
if nothing else happens in between, you've still got those two endpoints that are now putting you in Phoenix. Um, as, as impressive as nine wins will be, and this will not hurt his legacy. I think you wonderfully put it how, how this will be looked back on if for years to come, nine wins, the domination that they had. Uh, but it will be a temporary sting that people will talk about though for a long time. I, I tweeted right away that I've been bitching about Rusty Wallace winning 10 races, a third of the races in 1993. And no title. I've been bitching about that for 27 years. Kevin Harvick fans, if you are young and listening to this, you've got a hell of a future ahead of you because you will think about this for a long time. And to think it came down to not necessarily bad luck or a tire or an engine issue, but a poor performance at the wrong time, that's going to sting for a long time, David. You know, not to slumdog millionaire this thing, but... If you recall when we talked about Hendrick Motorsports having a dip in performance around Pocono time, uh, they very clearly did not have straightaway speed whatsoever. Um, and then to a lesser degree, the same thing at Indianapolis. And you and I wondered that, and I think there was some chatter elsewhere about where had Hendrick's speed gone. And everything sort of crystallized Sunday night. It, it didn't go anywhere. They, they, they didn't care about Pocono. I mean, they were in it to win. They were in it to try to win the race. Don't get me wrong, but why, why would they try to make gains? What would possess them to do that? Uh, gains on the 750 horsepower tracks would take them much further. And it did. And to that effect, the same, thing that uh that team Penske said I mean Travis Geisler said earlier this week the moment Phoenix was made the season finale Travis Geisler the competition director at team Penske he, he said th- that was when the pivot happened they became a 750 team Stuart oh. Haas can't say that about themselves and ultimately that's what bit them now devil's advocate it, it, it was really close to working because all of those wins in the middle of the year on tracks that didn't matter relative to the playoffs, they did award him playoff points. So he created a cushion, but as we learned, even that cushion was not substantial enough. That's why it's so hard to even, I hate if this comes across as criticism because of everything they did right. This seems like such an outlier, David, of this, the playoff system we've had, especially lately. I can't think of another time. I mean, I know there, it's a small sample size, but that the best car or the most deserving has not ended up in the final race. This seems like as time will play out, this will be such an outlier of an event that we can't judge it too harshly, but obviously it does happen. Yeah. Upsets happen. And, 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 and we witnessed one. So that, that is going to come with the playoff format as I think Denny Hamlin said it eloquently. Uh, Harvick said it himself. I mean, the, the years of how Petty and Earnhardt won championships are no more. Matt Kenseth's 2003 championship put an end to that. And I think there are a lot of fans right now that weren't around then to understand how boring that was <laughs> for the entire uh, second half of that season. And he didn't win races. He killed with consistency. So there, there is, there's bad things happening on the flip side to this. We just experienced the downturn, but again, this this was it. This was the play-in race, and Kevin Harvick himself knew this was a track that they were not at their best, and they brought a car, arguably the worst car they've brought to an oval this season. That was a beefy Kevin Harvick segment, but after nine wins and uh, an early playoff exit, uh, he deserved it. So we'll see you in 2021, Mr. Harvick. Next up, David, Martin Truex Jr. Let's just look at her, uh, his quick stats. One victory, 14 top fives, 22 top tens so far. And David, those baseline numbers would equate for his worst in all those uh, since 2015. Uh, so, but still a lot of good. I mean, Martin Truex Jr. has put up a, a high, a high bar when it comes to expectations. So let's talk about what he did right this year. Percentage wise, he is a top three restarter among the contenders from both both the preferred and non-preferred grooves this season. 
the speed of the 19 car is fast this year, especially if you want to give credit for a team with essentially a new crew chief. That's different this year. Fast, though. Late in the season, David, that car has been ranked second in central speed overall, moving up the chart at the right time of the year in the last few races. So given all that, what he's done on restarts, how fast the car was, it has to lead me to the bad because he is not in the final four in Phoenix. So this one I'm going to put on the driver. And again, it's all relative. Uh, he has the, the, the worry of expectations that he's put on himself because of his past performance the last few years. His bad is still pretty good. But David, Truex himself didn't put in the performance I think we've come to expect of him. I went through all the passing categories on motorsports analytics. And where you may have seen him in the top five in those categories, say, in recent years, every one of those categories for passing, overall passing, 550 track passing, 750 horsepower passing, short track, intermediate, instead of being kind of in the top five, he was in that six to 10th range in terms of passing numbers. And when we're talking about the best four drivers, or the best four teams, you know, or the, the advancing to Phoenix, I think when you pair the speed that he could have had or did have under his belt with some of his passing numbers, it, it kind of makes sense to me as to why he's not quite there. Great year. Not his best, not what we've come to expect of Martin Truex Jr. So if I had to pick a fix, it would just be to tweak those passing numbers once again, live up to the expectation of how fast his car is, and he'll be right back in championship contention. I think that's an excellent call. Uh, I, I thought about this during the Texas race, uh, and then I thought back to 2019, a season when you'd argue he was a, a very good uh, championship contender that year. His pass on Kevin Harvick to win at Las Vegas was just a textbook pass. And to to put himself in Harvick's rearview mirror to sort of scare Harvick out of his most comfortable line, only a few people on earth can do that to Kevin Harvick. Uh, fast forward to this year at Texas. I texted you this, so you're a witness to it. But I pointed out it was that just that arrow dynamic spot that we've seen. He was behind Clint Boyer. He had, at least by what I could tell, was a faster race car. And it was similar to uh, the week prior when Kevin Harvick couldn't get by Joey Logano. I told you that Martin Truex is a better passer than Kevin Harvick. Clint Boyer, probably a worse blocker than Joey Logano, and Truex cannot pop the pocket here. That That's the difference in a year. I, I think it is right there. It is very difficult to see the differences in some of these passing numbers with your eyes, but it, it's small things like that that come to the surface. Um, ultimately, that was early in the race at Texas. He couldn't get by his stable mate, Kyle Busch. Um, for the win. And yeah, I mean, it was just in just a couple of isolated incidents, you could see everything that you just mentioned. Yeah. Again, we're nitpicking here because we're going from the best eight to the best four, right? So we have to get a little uh, picky when it comes to our fixes and criticism. But again, if you're expecting one year to have to be one of those top five passers and all of a sudden you're in the six to 10 range, it's going to show up eventually at, uh, especially at the end of the season. But We'll move on. Martin Truex Jr. We'll wait till next year to see if he goes back to compete for title number two. David, next up, Alex Bowman. Uh, Alex Bowman. I think it depends on the prism with which you view this race team, how you grade their 2020 season. But I view this as a non-title contender who did not overachieve or underachieve. Because in the most simplistic terms, this was a team that made it to the final eight last year and made it there again this year. The season peaked at Fontana with the dominant win. And in the first race following the COVID pause, they finished second at Darlington. After that, they went 20 straight races without a top five finish. Part of that is on the driver. Alex Bowman's production rating right now is on par with the likes of Tyler Reddick, who is a rookie, who is a bit younger, and Eric Almarola, who I think is actually a good analog 
for Alex Bowman. I'd say Bowman's on the high end of that tier of a driver. And in terms of his pass efficiency, he's a bottom three passer. He's down 167 positions from the expectation of a car with its running position. And there is no track type that is currently measured in which he's a positive passer. No driver lost more positions from a top 14 restarting spot, 137 lost this season for Bowman. Wow. But as we've seen, these positional drops are only impacting a race as much as a crew chief will allow it. And Greg Ives is a good crew chief. The car ranks ninth in central speed across all racetracks. That jumps to seventh on the 550 tracks, uh, seventh early in a run, 10th late in a run. And that's what I want to point to here. The long runs, the drop in speed combined with the lack of long run passing from the driver, all of that is bad. And when you consider Ives is a good strategist, I know that we've talked about a few isolated moments of brilliance from him this year, but in totality, he's really sharp. Uh, his 60% retention rate when entering green flag pit cycles with a top five spot ranks second among crew chiefs with more than one attempt. And in that sense, Ives is a fantastic defender of front running positions, but Bowman appears to be giving up a lot of positions on long runs in addition to the short runs. And that's the fix here. That is what will take this team to the next step is mitigate that track position loss by the driver under green flag conditions. All right, good stuff. And uh, it dawns on you. I I don't know why it crept up on me, but back-to-back final eight appearances for Alex Bowman. I don't know. Why does that surprise me, David? Or why am I so taken by that? I mean, that's pretty good. And maybe I just didn't realize how good he was or how – uh, how good his numbers are, but that just struck me as, wow, that's, that's back to back. That's pretty damn good. Good team, not a great team, but that, that goes to show, uh, the benefit of having a good crew chief. I know earlier this year, I posited why Greg Ives had not been paired with Chase Elliott. Uh, I think Elliott has responded nicely to that with Alan <laughs> Gustafson, but I, I, I don't think we think enough of Greg Ives in that regard. Uh, Alex Bowman was always, I mean, look, he came into this role as a journeyman. Uh, it was always a questionable hire. It sounds as if he's made a home. He is well-liked there. And it is not only a regular playoff contender, it's a team that can go as far as the semifinal round. And that is something. So, to build from from that point to the next level, now it's going to take a lot of improvement from the driver, but I think baby steps would be encouraging in that regard. Good stuff. Yeah, and at the very least, all you can ask of a driver is to live up to his or her equipment. And Alex Bowman putting that car in the final eight two years in a row, I say that passes the test. So good on young Mr. Bowman. We'll see you in 2021. Finally, David, Kurt Busch. One win this season, uh, when it was most important in the playoffs, but that also gave him seven top fives, 19 top tens on the season. Overall, an improvement over last year. Uh, I'm going to give him the overachiever award so far, David. Uh, at least one of them. Uh, I'm sure you have others in mind, but your projections at the beginning of the year, David, your pr- production and equal equipment rating, your peer projections had him as the 17th best driver on the list. Uh, no, he came in at number 17 in your preseason projections. Right now, I believe he's ninth. He's been hovering around seventh or ninth all year. I think that's pretty damn good. And part of that comes from him being a restarter extraordinaire. David, he is the best among, you know, the big names, the contenders. He is the, from the non-preferred groove this year, non-preferred groove. Kurt has a 50-50 shot at retaining his position. That is the best in the series. He has a coin flips chance from the worst part on the racetrack. That's pretty damn good. And he's pretty damn good as well from the preferred groove. So that's all the good stuff, right? He got the win. He's a great restarter. Let's look at what maybe needs some fixing. David, late in the season, he had the worst surplus passing percentage at 750 tracks and one of the worst at all short tracks altogether. Although he did have a pretty good performance at Martinsville, I would say that weakness will show out 
toward the end of the season. And when you're talking a trip to the final four in Phoenix, that's going to show if your passing numbers aren't there, especially at a 750 track or at a short track like Martinsville, what have you. One other thing I'll point out, David, for this team, the one team, crew chief Matt McCall, minus 51 total positions this season on green flag pit cycles. Uh, th- that's on uh, the bad end, if you will. So that needs to be fixed. But overall, I-, I think the one team kind of overachieved. They do have some glaring fixes to make. But when you have success and you still have some things to fix, I-, I almost think that's a positive, David, because you know what you can point to going into 2021. You tweak those things. You enhance your strengths. I think the one team will have a good season next year. You know, I, I don't know. I have no idea how history is going to look back at Kurt Busch winning his first championship so young in 2004, bouncing from Roush to Penske to nearly out of the sport to Furniture Row to uh, Stuart Haas and now Chip Ganassi Racing. And he is in a position, maybe for the first time ever, where he is the focal point of a multi-car team with a, a decent amount of resources past his prime statistically, but I would argue the best thing about Chip Ganassi racing right now. Um, I wrote uh, a few months ago on Forbes that he is he is not expendable. He, he has to. <laughs> he has to. Um, he has to stay at Ganassi. He's sort of the glue holding all of this together. And just mentioning the non-preferred groove restarts, I mean, that is that is the calling card. I think for me, that's what I'm always going to remember about him. He's not retiring anytime soon, so I, I don't know why I'm uh, be, uh, speaking in this manner, but that is that is what comes to mind for me about him. Um, I did sit down with him for a longer interview for an article that will probably be, uh, appear on Motorsports Analytics early next year about his thought process on restarts and not to give it all away, but one of the things that he told me is before he gets to turn one, he has a plan and in watching a lot of these drivers on these wild restarts, especially on the 550 tracks, there's a lot of panic going on. There isn't a lot of planning, but Kurt Busch is a planner. And not only does that show, I mean, he is a sight to behold on these, on these restarts, but it shows in the numbers as well. And it's that loss mitigation. It was the same, the thing that I was asking Alex Bowman to achieve that has been Kurt Bush's calling card for so, so long. Um, once he has a position, at least in short runs, he keeps it. And that's going to keep him viable for as long as he wants, especially in a situation like the one he has right now. I think it's just a, a matter of when they had their success. But I, I was just in researching today, I did not realize Martin Truex Jr. and Kurt Busch are very similar age. You know, they I think they overlap 40 and 41 at some point. And it just seems to me Kurt Busch has been, because he has been in there so much longer. But I think of him as so much more of a veteran for some reason. You know, he's so much older at times for some reason. But they are still very similar age. Kurt Busch, I would have put in his mid-40s, and he's 41. So they're, as Kevin Harvick is showing us, there there's plenty of time still ahead. I just think, as you mentioned, Kurt Busch had success at such an early age that it, it's put this frame around his career that he's been around a long time, which he has, but it made me think he was much older than he actually is. And so he still has pretty decent years ahead of him, uh, especially if he can keep up with these restart numbers, especially given the modern-day NASCAR surrounding stage racing and restarts. Yeah, I think Clint Boyer agrees with you because he's the same age. Yeah, wow. <laughs> J- oh. Jumping jumping up and down wondering where his contract extension is. Weird. Uh, but <laughs> that is um, – no, that is a testament to, to Kurt Busch's longevity. Um, he has maybe reinvented himself personally a number of times, but the that, that constant has just been – the on-track performance. Maybe it hasn't been complete. I mean, there have been some some volatile outings for Kurt Busch. Just listen to him on the radio. But when it goes right, man, that is something. And I, you know, I, I can't I can't argue that it, it didn't go right this year. I, I don't 
I don't know that that Chip Ganassi racing team, because they were low on all of the speed numbers, uh, I mean, in both regards, if you count the, count the 42 car, this was the underdog among the final eight teams. I think that was clear. But with Kurt Busch in the car, it still felt like they at least had a puncher's chance because of what he's able to produce. All right. Good stuff. Good stuff, Kurt. And uh, shout out, you know, he's my teammate up in the truck booth now. So uh, he also became a quite a nice broadcaster as well in 2020. But we'll look what he can do in 2021. Requiems and fixes. Another round down. Four more to go in Phoenix. We'll get to that coming up soon. But first, David, let's talk about something else going on uh, big time in 2020. And that was the free agency class. Uh, I think it's mostly completed now, especially with, with Kyle Larson news being official. There's still some other pieces of the puzzle to fill in, but in terms of the biggest names, uh, they all have seats for next year. Uh, some are winners, some are uh, losers, if you will. Um, uh, losers a tough word. I, I hate being mean, David, but, uh, you wrote two great articles for Forbes, uh, dictating who won free agency and who was left disappointed. So we're going to go into both of those. Where do you want to start? I mean, you want to start big picture. Uh, there, there were certainly some examples we're going to point out, but in the two articles, the research that you did, uh, what was your takeaway from this year's free agency? Because, uh, between COVID, between Kyle Larson and his situation, not knowing when he to be back where he would go and probably ended up being at the same spot we always expected him to be but uh through it all what what is your takeaway of the free agency class of 2020 oh uh i mean the the biggest winner or or at least the most dominant performer was covid uh and and that was that was the thing that affected most of these agreements because in hearing uh these team officials discuss the negotiations the majority of them were delayed. They took place later. Um, they slashed driver salaries by 30 to 40 percent um, just in preparation of the storm that could come. Um, we, we don't know how the economy is going to react, especially if the pandemic is prolonged. So it's teams taking proactive steps. But it's also throwing the jobs market in a bit of disarray. The majority of contracts that we saw dished out, at least so far, are one-year deals. And that is, in I think all cases, the team and the driver just taking one-year bets. Just, okay, run it back. Um, in a In a large portion of these, the driver was left unsatisfied by the salary number. But... That was what we saw for the most part. Um, I think that's compelling. It's difficult, especially if we're going to talk about one um, specific driver who was left disappointed, especially if you're looking for a big payday, which you've probably earned. Um, it's just unfortunate that it came during this year when there was so much uncertainty um, in the in the outside world, the bigger world than the NASCAR industry. Um, that's That's what happens when the real world affects our little sport, we saw it come into play here. So um, that's my takeaway. It's just w- what we thought was going to be uh, a massive, fun free agency period. Uh, lots of rumors swirling, lots of ideas. Um, but in the end, the, the thing that mattered most was a pandemic and drivers sort of retreating just to get anything that they could get. Yeah, and that's what you mentioned COVID and because of COVID, or it's weird that you mentioned COVID because your biggest winner, David, if you read those articles on Forbes.com, uh, Ryan Blaney, you write because, well, one reason is because Ryan Blaney signed before COVID and that had to factor in into your, uh, choice of biggest winner of free agency. Please explain. Yeah. So for starters, he didn't. Uh, he clearly didn't plan for this. He told me that he wanted to return to Team Penske and he did not want negotiations to drag. Uh, he didn't want to wait. He wanted it done. He wanted to focus on the new season. He had a new crew chief. He thought it was going to be a good year and in many ways it was. So he got the deal done early and in doing so, comes the most important part. He was the only free agent to lock himself 
into a deal before the onset of COVID. And that, that's just a stroke of good fortune, man. I mean, you really can't plan for that, even though that is a win for him and for his bank account. Uh, there is still a lot that he's going to have to do now because now Alan and it comes the tricky part. He's going to have to live up to this deal because he is locked in to a multi-year deal on what we will call a pre-COVID rate, his value on the open market now might not surpass what he is making. So now the onus falls on him to prove that his current pay rate isn't 40% too high. You know what I mean? At this rate, he cannot be a one win a year driver that we've come to expect. Now, this contract assumes that he is a more prolific winner and producer. He has to do that, and he knows it. He said that it's always good to prove that you are worth re-signing, but he's aware that there's just this extra. We don't know if driver salaries are going to return to what they were prior to this year. That's entirely possible, Um, but without much change, he underperforms this contract. And that would certainly affect his subsequent deal. And on the flip side of that with Team Penske, it's possible that this contract is an accidental albatross if he doesn't reach uh, the new value of what he is being paid. Interesting stuff. But the biggest winner, Ryan Blaney, maybe got some luck out of it, but also, you know, well-deserved re-signing with Penske. Uh, championship contender this year. We'll see what he does with it in 2021. David, let's stay with Team Penske because as you write in Forbes, left most disappointed. Brad Kislowski. Why is this a loss for Brad Kislowski? He re-signed with Penske. He is going to the Final Four this year, we know, and he'll be back with a, a championship contending team next year. Why is this a loss for Brad Kozlowski? Brad Kozlowski agreed to a one-year contract extension for what is believed to be a steep cut from what he was already making. And and why it's a loss for him is because he is the next in line based on age to enjoy the fruits of his age 39 season and the statistical peak provided by this point in the average driver's career. And to take, not only to take the pay cut, but the lack of longer-term job security, given what we know about how drivers develop, uh, is a bit unsettling. And you don't have to be a Keselowski fan to understand what's happening here. I'm very much pro-labor. I comprehend that there's going to be a drop (laughs) in sponsor revenue as a result of the country's economy correcting, but the deliberate determination that drivers should take less, and this is the reason Hendrick Motorsports didn't want to pay more than $2 million for a driver. It's the reason Ross Chastain, winless this season in the Xfinity Series, got a ride with a recent Cup Series playoff team, and Eric Jones did not. That cohesive effort from the owners is interesting. Uh, when I talked with Kurt Busch for Forbes, he said that this is something that has always happened. Uh, owners are infatuated with the next big opportunity they can score on the cheap. <laughs> but that kind of thing is happening now in what he called a more unionized effort versus the drivers. A lot of folks noted that Keselowski spoke with some melancholy, maybe that's not the right word, but was kind of down on the model, as he put it, in and around NASCAR in the days before this extension was announced. And yes, understandably, he's probably miffed that he didn't get that payday that he thought he was going to get, the one that similar drivers who came before him received. But I'm guessing he may have also glimpsed into NASCAR's future a bit and didn't particularly care for what he saw. Interesting. Well, we know he'll be back. And uh, as I mean, as his numbers show and as his trajectory shows, uh, worth a lot, expecting more, uh, interesting how it all played out. David, can I throw one more in there in terms of biggest winner of free agency? Sure. I would say after reading your articles, obviously it has to be, I think Hendrick Motorsports. Hendrick Motorsports got Kyle Larson 
on a cut rate. I don't know if you call it a rookie deal, if that's fair, but the salary that I imagine they are paying Kyle Larson for Hendrick to have Kyle Larson makes them a winner in free agency. Potentially. Uh, now, hmm. there are a number of factors that go into that. You want a driver to come into your team and, yeah, compete, compete for wins, compete for championships, but really, it's to create revenue. And Kyle Larson is going to have to go out and compete for purse. Uh, it's going to be very difficult to sell a sponsorship program built around him, at least in the short term. But even then, if he goes out and wins races, how does Hendrick Motorsports take that success and use it to build around him, put it back into the program, put it back into the other programs that they have? That's an interesting question. I agree with you. They they probably got everything they wanted from day one out of free agency at a much smaller rate than they thought they were going to get it. Um, so in that sense, Hendrick Motorsports is going to be very interesting next season. But I don't know if they're out of the woods because okay. the the gains required – um, just the, the financial aspect of all of this that's needed to keep a team like this afloat. Um, how they pay for that will, will be curious. Yeah. They, they won on driver salary, but now they're going to have to figure out how to keep this team to a standard that is worthy of Kyle Larson while Kyle Larson is also probably a, a big part of the problem. Hmm. Interesting stuff. Winners and disappointments of 2020's free agency class. Moving on to our big preview for Phoenix in the championship weekend. But first, we got a sponsor, David. Yes, our Phoenix preview is sponsored by Sunday Scaries. Sunday Scaries is a leading manufacturer of CBD products, including energy shots, gummies, tinctures, and more. I personally have taken a liking to the energy shots. Uh, they call them the YOLO shots. They come in a bottle that looks like some of the energy shots you'll find at your local drugstore. And like those shots, they contain vitamins D and B12 and also caffeine. But with Sunday Scaries, with the CBD infused, it doesn't give me the nervous energy that comes with those other energy shots. I like to call it a calming focus. It keeps me at neutral for the task at hand and the best news. Our listeners can give these YOLO shots a try, all of it a try, by going to sundayscaries.com and trying any of these products at a 25% discount with the coupon code POSREGPOD. That is P-O-S-R-E-G-P-O-D. And that is good for all of the products they sell. That is sundayscaries.com for all your CBD needs. That is coupon code POSREGPOD, P-O-S-R-E-G-P-O-D for 25% off. On to Phoenix, David, where we will crown a champion in all three series, but we're talking cup because this is the first year the champions will be crowned in Phoenix. And it's interesting because there has been a change from 2019 to 2020 with the racing at Phoenix, with the package that they are bringing. So, David, let's talk about it. There was a change in the spoiler size from 2019 to 2020. We've seen it. One example earlier this year of this package at Phoenix uh, it's an interesting question, but the word entertaining, does this make Phoenix a more entertaining track, especially considering they're going to crown a champion on Sunday? I have to imagine it was more entertaining to the common fan that, that wasn't playing, uh, paying the kind of attention that we do. <laughs> uh, 3.2 restarts per 100 miles in that spring race. And Alan, that is on the high end of the list of caution filled races. So there you go. There's entertainment. But, uh, of course cars were racing in packs on those restarts and that's likely going to earn high marks as something being more competitive. But the important part here is how the track valued 
efficient passers and how those values increased. And I'll, I'll try to explain this. In the 2019 fall race, which may have been the tipping point for the spoiler change, Denny Hamlin won the race with a surplus passing value of plus 3.68%. His expected adjusted pass efficiency was just 51.16%. Okay. Just keep those numbers. Don't need to know what they mean because we're going to skyrocket past them here. <laughs> In the spring race this year, with the reduced spoiler size, both of those numbers for the winning car improved dramatically. Joey Logano's 56.96% expected adjusted pass efficiency was far better. What does that mean? That means based on a race-wide slope, fast cars passed more often. And oh. I think that is something that fans are looking for. Uh, furthermore, Logano's surplus passing value was plus 20.44%, the highest of the race, and he was rewarded the win for his effort. So that, what I just spoke, I mean, there's probably some listeners that are even confused by that. That's okay. It's not perceptible to the naked eye, but the spring race this year proved to at least cater to the better, more talented drivers than the previous Phoenix race. All right. And David, we've done a whole episode on positive regression. You can go back and listen, but we did a whole episode of what is a good race? You know, how do we define that? One of my definitions was always parody. And I know this is a one race sample size, but you go back to the spring race this year at Phoenix, David, four drivers led 60 or more laps in that race. And guess who three of them were? Joey Logano, Chase Elliott, Brad Keselowski three of whom will race for the championship coming up this weekend. So uh I, when it comes to parity and, and drivers who can get out there and lead, I mean, that to me says a good race. So maybe it will be if that fits your definition a little more entertaining. We'll see. That's up to the, the viewer, I suppose. Uh, we also love to talk restarts about uh, the track that we, the tracks that we go to, David. So let's talk about the restart dynamic at Phoenix. Obviously, it will come into play. It is a, a short race. Restarts may be even more important in, in shorter races. We know there's going to be what? At least, uh, four of them. Uh, and we, you just told us about the cautions, uh, how many, the high average that it had in the earlier race. So David, tell us about the restart dynamic at Phoenix. Yeah, I don't know if that caution volume is going to be emulated, but restarts are still going to be important. Uh, the front row saw the car on the inside retain 80% of the time compared to the outside's 40% rate. And from that point on, the, the preferred groove flipped beyond that row. Things were more even and actually cars on the outside retained better. And that was a 59% to 48% margin. Uh, that's important, Alan. I think a lot of folks assume that the inside, especially with a dog leg, allows for more room. But as we've discussed, the same dynamic exists with Pocono. More room does not mean there are more reliable pathways. It's a good escape route, certainly, but the outside groove at least tends to be the reliable one at Phoenix. Uh, now, drivers to watch on restarts in the spring race, we saw Joey Logano gain a race best 12 positions on six attempts from the preferred groove. Uh, I'm going to have to imagine that that was part and parcel to his win there uh, this spring. Uh, the non-preferred groove, Kyle Busch had 14 spots gained on four attempts. There was a tire differential on, on some of those, but still that... 14 and 4 is a gaudy number of positions compared to the average for the race, which was actually a loss of 0.7 spots for the non-preferred groove. Kyle Busch, good race car driver. Uh, he, he might be your contrarian pick this weekend, Alan. <laughs> well, yeah, we're getting to the, this is tough because if you consider anyone outside the top four a contrarian pick, I mean, it's easy. That's, I even wrote this down. Like, oh, I don't know, Kevin Harvick, uh, Ryan Blaney, are those contrarian picks since they're not in the championship four? But David, I'll try to go with a true contrarian. I'll go with Clint Boyer. I'll, I'll just take Clint Boyer. He had a good run there in the spring, a top five, and he is one of the better, uh, 750 horsepower passers this 
season. So why not mix the two? And I, I know all where all the focus will be on Sunday. It's just the nature of the game. But maybe Clint Boyer goes out uh, on as top as he can go, if you will, and sneaks in and gets a, a top five, leads some laps, top ten. But uh, kudos to you and your career, Clint Boyer. You are my contrarian contender for the final race of 2020. Well, guess what, Clint? You are also my contrarian no! contender. Oh, yeah. Are you serious? Yes. Oh, final I, race. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. If I pick the same as David, I know I did something right. I'm feeling good about myself. Maybe a little extra motivation. I mean, we can't, we can't quantify that, but we can <laughs> point to his passing and he had the fourth best surplus passing value at Phoenix in that spring race. Uh, we can point to this team speed at Phoenix in the spring. It was ninth overall and seventh in the fourth quarter specifically. And the top five finish you mentioned, that's one of two this season. And let's be real, it'd be sort of weird and all very on brand for this entire year. So yeah, Clint Boyer, contrarian <laughs> contender for the uh, 2020 season finale. Good stuff. And David, here's where it gets good because our listeners, you'll notice we did not go in depth about the championship contenders. There's a good reason for that. We are planning a special positive regression pre-race show in advance of the championship race this Sunday. But we're going to go deep on all four championship contenders, but we're going to interact with you while we do it, answering all the questions that you may have. If you are interested in joining us for this show, all you have to do is go to survey.posregpod.com, take the two-minute survey answering questions about yourself and your positive regression listening habits, and once you are done, you will receive a link for our pre-race show, which will go live on Sunday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time. You may fill your surveys out as late as 10 a.m. Eastern Time on Sunday morning. That is when I will close registration on that. All of this is free. All we are asking for is two minutes of your time, and we promise we will make it worth your while as Alan said, we're going to go deep. We've got a lot to cover for championship contenders and your questions. Awesome stuff. We need your help. We hope to hear from you. Starting something new. Thank you for joining us on this venture Sunday, the pre-race show to the championship to end the season. That's going to be fun. It's going to be a fun deal. Uh, David, you know, it was a great idea and we're going to pull it off. It's going to be really cool. So do not forget though, we are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, Luminary, and TuneIn. We're available no matter your device. Our entire catalog of episodes is available for free at posregpod, P-O-S-R-E-G-P-O-D.com. If you like what you're hearing, please leave us a rating or a review. That stuff does help spread the word. We notice it. It is so appreciated. Tell a friend. Get the word out. It does help this little podcast of ours. If you have questions, send them to us on Twitter at posregpod. David, you're always working hard, even at the end of the season, maybe the busiest ever. What are you working on? Ah, uh, you know what? Mainly gearing up for this great pre-race show that we're going to have. Uh, I'll, I'll double back. That, that is this Sunday, 1 p.m. Eastern time, survey.posregpod.com, S-U-R-V-E-Y dot posregpod.com. Make sure you have access. We're going to have fun and stay tuned to motorsportsanalytics.com. Stats are being updated this week. They will be completed following the Phoenix race weekend. And the week after, Alan, one more episode of Positive Regression for the 2020 season, our big year-end episode, the conclusion to our crew chief draft to see which <laughs> one of us ended up winning. Boy, a lot of things happening in short order, but I'm excited. Yes, and we'll have a lot to talk about because don't forget, we're crowning two other champions in Phoenix. I will gladly and proudly be on pit road Friday night as they cr we crown a truck champion. I cannot wait for that. What a great season it's been and, and a very cool final four for the truck. So make sure you tune into FS1 because that is going to be a heck of a race. And, uh, you know, watch race up, do it, do every, just consume as much racing as you can, but race up Monday through Thursday, 6 PM Eastern on FS1. This has been a lengthy beefy episode. We appreciate you sticking with us because it's been a good one. And if you're listening, we'll see you on Sunday for David Smith. I'm Alan Kavana. Have a great one.
15 minutes could save you 15% or more. Wait a minute. I've heard that before. That's the note Jeremy wrote to me in my yearbook in the sixth grade. How'd you even know that? Because it's from Geico. Yeah, yeah wait, here it is. Dear Luke, have a great summer. P.S. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more. Love, Jeremy. Geico's had this tagline for years, because we help save people money. So wait, you're saying Jeremy copied you? <laughs> yeah, that actually does sound like something the J-Man would do. GEICO. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more.